the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. It's our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We talk about things from the perspective of our Catholic teaching. And kind of last week, Tom was very good in kind of running down for us what those major principles are. I'm not going to do it in the same way, but I'll do it much more briefly. The dignity of the human person, participation in civic life and family, uh, the rights of workers, an option for the poor, concern with other nations, solidarity, peoples all over the globe, and concern for nature. And so those are the things which are high values for us. And so we look at what's going on in the world from that perspective. And sometimes we look at things which are kind of pretty positive, and we highlight the good news of when those values are in ample evidence. And other times we look at those situations in which those values are lacking. And so we kind of look at sometimes the glass half full, sometimes the glass half empty, and we kind of uh, check those things out. But, you know, before we go to our guests this week, Tom, it's uh, fall is coming up. So, in fact, fall is coming up. We are in fall, (laughs) uh, but it's still September. I kind of think, you know, so, Tom, let me share with you my notion of the seasons, okay? okay? So, depending on the year, summer begins either Memorial Day or July 4th, mm-hmm. okay? So, okay. probably that. Um, <clears throat> the fall begins, I think, kind of Columbus Day. Columbus Day mm-hmm. is really the beginning of a fall. And I am giving you, though, that winter begins on December 21st, because that way Christmas becomes the big deal for the beginning of, of, uh, of winter Mm -hmm. and spring begins in Easter on Easter. Okay. Yeah. Whether it's early, late, I know it's not (laughs) true, but, but Easter is, is kind of that. So that's, you know, I know God, you created the world that rotates and all of that, but my world Yes, we we begin spring with Easter. We begin summer with Memorial Day, Fourth of July. Fall begins Columbus Day, and then December. Chris, uh, I'm sorry, winter kind of begins just before just before Christmas. Now, Tom, I'm going to ask you to educate our listeners a little bit. Okay. Um, on um, do you know what Ember Days are? Oh, oh no! I don't know much here. I don't know what Ember Days are. I don't think I've ever heard that. Ember Days, and I'm just going to speak very generically. Mm-hmm. What kind of days around the harvest okay. when you prayed in a particular way for good harvest? Now somebody's going to correct me because I know that's not really right. But um, but Ember Days kind of respect the changing of the seasons. So and and kind of being in tune with the earth harvest time and asking God, I think God's blessing upon those. And I've, if I'm not correct, in the old days, Ember days may have been a day in which days in which there was at least partial fasting, mm, uh, maybe in preparation for the harvest. 
and again, I'm really stretching, so I'm really showing my <laughs> ignorance, that there may have been in the spring or so around the time of planting. So, Interesting. But, you know, somebody's going to correct me on that because I'm not entirely sure. So do you like the fall, Tom? I do. I do. I, I, I like, uh, you know, I like the change of seasons. And what I like about fall is it gives you the opportunity, you know, I mean, if you if you have sweaters, if you have jackets, it gives you the opportunity to wear them before you have to get into the heavy, heavy coat. You know, okay. like wintertime is the heavy, heavy coat. Whereas this way, like if you like a jacket or if you want to get out in a sweater or something like that, it gives you the opportunity to do that. And you don't have to be covered in like a blanket, basically, yeah. Uh, yeah. to protect yourself. <laughs> but to our listeners throughout the country, I just want kind of everybody to know in the Northeast, but other parts of the country, too. One of the great things about the fall is the changing of the trees and the foliage and all of the beautiful things of nature. I just want you to know that Tom, who really is a very committed person to working on the stewardship of the earth, mm-hmm. his concern about fall is that you wear a sweater. <laughs> so, I mean, I just want you all to know that, um, that while the rest of us are appreciating the beauty of nature, Tom's looking in his closet to find the best sweater for the fall. But listen, it's a free country. You know, Tom, great. I hope you get a nice sweater. And, um, you know, actually, I think you told us for Lent last year, you uh-huh. told us that, <clears throat> you know, when you go shopping, um, what'd you say, Marshalls or TJ Maxx? Or TJ Maxx, yeah. TJ Maxx. So, yeah. okay, since we're no longer in Lent, go ahead. Go out there now and you buy yourself <laughs> a nice sweater for the for the fall. So we can, I can do that now, Monsieur. Yes, I can. We, we can have a good, good sweater. So, um, um Anyway, so listen, you know what I'm doing this first weekend of fall, or maybe the Ooh. second weekend of fall. This is my apple picking. Ah, that's right. That's right. So I'm going apple picking with my cousin. Uh, I pick as many apples as I can kind of get in my cart. And I just love apple picking. So that's what I'm doing this fall. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about it as we go. Uh, go on. Um, <clears throat> but let's go on to this. The month of, of October is also Substance Abuse Prevention Month. So for that reason, we've had a guest on who's going to talk about a pretty uh, dark topic because substance abuse is something that plagues so many different people. But it's something that is critically important that we understand more about and that we, um, you know, educate ourselves about it. So I'm really delighted that um, Dr. Kenneth Leonard, the director, director and social uh, research specialist at the, the University of Buffalo Clinical Research Institute on Addiction. Uh, Dr. Leonard, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. Um, so, Dr. Leonard, let's just kind of get, get into this quickly. I know it's Substance Abuse Month, but, you know, for my whole lifetime and, you know, growing up, which, and, and I'm an old guy, so this is many years ago, I remember, you know, when I was kind of becoming a teenager that, you know, in school and my parents never said, don't take drugs, they're bad for you, you get in trouble, you become an addict. 
So the whole notion of drugs being dangerous and things that we shouldn't do and kids shouldn't do, adults shouldn't do, is not something new. But it does seem to me, even as, I, as I've gotten older, let me just phrase it in a way, and you please correct me. It doesn't seem things have gotten any better. And it may be since they've gotten worse. So I guess what I'm asking you from your perspective, can you give our listeners a little bit of, so what's going on in our country these days with, with, the, with substance abuse and, and kind of what's the status of it? So um, I, I think one thing to, to think about is that um, substances change over time. And, and so um, if you look at alcohol, this country has gone through periods where alcohol was um, very much a problem and then periods where it's declined. And we don't always have a good understanding of, of, of why alcohol patterns have shifted like that. Um, it is the case that at least in more recent years that um, the use of many substances has increased and the use of, of a lot of them um, has increased for different reasons. So as I said, um, alcohol uh, has been increasing. Uh, we see increases in alcohol primarily among older people uh, and largely among women, um, you know, groups that had been largely protected for years. We saw increases in opiate use, uh, and that was largely because of a of of a of a market, um, and and people who were um, marketing that both legal marketing and illegal marketing, and of course the the cannabis story is one where it's become more and more accessible, um, and and you alluded to something there, which is this notion of feeling uh, as though. Um, there was a risk to you in in using a substance. And it is the case that for a lot of these things that people's evaluation of that risk has gone down. And when that risk goes down, um, for any number of reasons, they feel like they want to try this. Use of substances has been with us forever. Um, it, it dates back to indigenous societies, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't create those kind of problems in indigenous societies that it does in modern societies. You, you mentioned something. So um, again, I think we all have heard the word, but like we hear heroin, we hear um, marijuana, we hear um, fentanyl, we hear that. What's that general term opiates mean? So we use the word opioid for medications or substances that um, that attach to a, a re specific receptor in the brain, so the mu opioid receptor. Um, and there are other opiate receptors in the brain besides that particular one, but those that's the one where a lot of the opiates of of uh, that create problems um, attach. Um, the opioids um, before we had synthetic opioids, so that it comes from opium. And opium uh, is derived from opium poppies. Uh, so the um, uh, the structure of the various, uh, we call them synthetic um, opioids, the chemical structure is very, very similar to the, the structure of um, naturally occurring opium. Of course, it's much stronger 
than naturally occurring opium because the opium in poppies is um it's diluted it's it's not um it's not pure opium so um we now have here heard kind of the the word fentanyl the fentanyl what's that all about so fentanyl is a a very powerful opiate it's more powerful than heroin it's something that um can be manufactured and and it doesn't take um a sort of an advanced chemistry degree to be able to figure out how to um, to manufacture fentanyl. Um, I don't know how to do it, but um, but there are people who who've been able to figure that out. Problem with fentanyl is that because it's so much stronger than even heroin, that small amounts of it can cause um, respiratory arrest and 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 death. Um, so, Professor Leonard, again, educate me and educate our our listeners. Okay, that's like the risk of of let's say fentanyl or, or any drug that it could cause death. But there's got to be something good about it. That that why do people do it? So, I, I I think it's important to understand how fentanyl and heroin and and opiates, the the prescription opiates, sort of fit together. Because people don't start off saying, I want to have fentanyl. Right? Um, uh, uh, people um, used opiates um, for a couple reasons. So one is for the alleviation of pain. Um, for some people, it creates sort of a euphoria. Um, not all people. I've spoken with many people who say that, that when they've had um, um, a painkiller in uh, connection with a back injury or something that they really couldn't stand the way it made them feel. So so some people don't feel uh, that at all, and other people feel a bit of euphoria. Um, but one of the things about the opiates is that your brain adapts to them. And so um, we, we refer to that ad- adaptation as dependence or tolerance, so that um, over time, they lose their effect and you have to take more and more of them or you have to take stronger and stronger ones. Um, and if you don't, then the, the effects that are the opposite of the drug kick in. So your pain is actually exacerbated. Your pain becomes worse. Um, you feel a little bit depressed. Um, and so over time, what happens is that people's doses of these opiates increase and in order to get something that makes them feel like they're not miserable uh, requires a stronger dose. And so they will sometimes will take larger doses of these or they'll move on to heroin. Um, Fentanyl, um, for the most part, um, it ends up being mixed in with heroin. Uh, So many of the deaths that we see that are attributed to fentanyl are people who are taking heroin that has some amount of fentanyl in it. And because these um, labs are not so precise at calibrating that it's, it's easy to overdose on that. Right. So is that clear? Yes, it is. Professor yeah. Leonard, who is the director of senior research scientist at uh, the University of Buffalo Clinical and Research Institute on Addiction. So let me go to kind of uh, the broad, broad question for a moment and tell us, so like everybody says, oh, addiction is worse, substance abuse is you. What are some of the ways we measure whether or not 
there's more substance abuse, less substance abuse. And after you answer that, then I'm going to ask you, where are we in the in the in the in that in in as a society today? So um, the 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 most common way that we measure it um, is with uh, national surveys, okay. um, where we ask people about their use and 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 there's pros and cons to that. You know, over the years we know that you know that some people don't tell us the truth and other right. people exaggerate. But over the years, that that tends to, to give us sort of an approximation, and you can trace it um, in terms of you know how much use increases and how much um, how many different people have used it in their lifetime, or how many people have used it in the last year or in the last month. Um, and um, so that's one way. But then we also look at things like uh, at the far extreme of that would be death rates. So um, the the Center for Disease Control has a database that lists the causes of death for individuals. And so we can trace deaths due to the various substances. Um, so deaths due to heroin, deaths due to fentanyl, deaths to the, death to the prescription opiates, um, deaths due to cocaine, all of those things are in that database. And so a lot of our understanding comes from that. And there's other databases too. So there's databases from police, there's databases from treatment agencies, um, from emergency rooms. So there's a variety of different ways that we can track that. Our view of that recently has been that for many drugs, we've seen increases over the past five to 10 years. Uh, We've seen increases in cannabis. We've seen increases in, um, as I mentioned earlier, alcohol. We've seen increases in um, heroin. We have the 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 overall rates of prescription opiate use don't seem to have increased, possibly because the the physicians who prescribe um, opiate painkillers have become much more vigilant of those prescriptions, and the number of prescriptions has declined by perhaps sixty percent. Um, over the the course of probably 2011 till now. So um, you mentioned something before. And so let me ask kind of an economic question of you, some of that, the growth. um, So let me pretend I'm an economist for a moment, okay? Um, Is the growth on the supply side or the demand side? Um. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Um, you know, um, a lot of the uh, use that we've seen in recent years has been has been tied to this notion of uh, deaths of despair. Right. And you know, we have seen increases in suicides. Um, we've seen uh, and 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 a lot of the uses of opiates were attributable to those kinds of of things. <laughs> So there's been some increase on on that level, but there's also been massive increases on on the supply side. Um, You know, one of the things that happened um, around 2011, 2012 was cheap um, heroin that was coming from Mexico began to to make its way into the United States and came in in massive quantities, much cheaper, much more pure than it had been in the 80s and 90s. Uh, And so... Um, there, there's, there's an active marketing on that side as well. So um, it's, it's been a little bit of both. 
So uh, I have two two questions. Let me ask it to you first. In in this, the, let me ask you the first one is um, uh, Empire of Pain. I I was just fascinated by this book that I read last summer about the Sackler family that. Um, you know, was very involved in pharmaceuticals and the development, the sale, the marketing of 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 opioids and and things like that. Uh, what uh, what was your reaction to the perspective of that book? So I didn't read that particular book, although I've been reading. I think it's called American Cartel now, okay. um, and, and um, I was sort of horrified uh, right. by that. Um, anybody who who has an understanding of of sort of the the, the uh, neurophysiology of opiates um, would would view anybody who says this is not addictive uh, with immense skepticism. Um, and so the uh, pushes that were were out in the pharmaceutical industry about about the various opioid painkillers as not being addictive. Um, were were blatantly false, and and they were based on um, a, one letter that went to a, a medical journal that said that people in the hospital didn't tend to to develop addiction if they were given opiates. Well, that doesn't mean that they're not addictive. It just means that in certain contexts and certain doses for certain amounts of time, they don't create those kind of problems. Um, and then there was this the the whole marketing and pushing these out to internet. Uh, pharmacies that created this giant black market uh, for uh, these to these drugs to become available, and at least according to to the American Cartels book, um, they this was something that um, they should have been aware of. They should have been aware that there there was many many more opiates going to specific pharmacies than they could ever responsibly um, um, distribute. Um, Dr. Leonard, even, I mean, if, if my memory serves you correct, but a lot of it was not even black market. It was simply pushing it through pharmacists and through doctors as a as above the board thing to do. What? Absolutely. But but it, it was diverted and then it became right. it, it got into the black market. And then and then, you know, you had this whole group of people who really wanted it. So. Okay. For their own pain, access to these drugs to get them into the black market. Okay. So let me let me go back and ask a a kind of uh, question which is unfair. Okay. If if I would ask you a question, so why why is there this growth in it, and why does somebody become an addict? Is it kind of in their genes that they're they're predisposed or is it the way they were raised if they weren't raised right or is it simply moral failure that they just are doing something bad i mean granted i i phrase this simplistically but right. but 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 give us a little bit of perspective how we should think about why a person becomes an addict well the, the first thing you have to 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 understand is that there's no single simple cause, right? So, so that uh, genetics play a role. Um, early, early raising in the family 
plays a role. Monitoring of, of children and adolescents plays a role. Um, um, so all of those things contribute. Um, and, and then, you know, people don't start taking drugs with the idea that they want, they want to become addicted. They take them because they view them as, as uh, serving a purpose in their life. And so um, to the extent that people have developed alternative purposes in their life, um, that serves, that tends to be protective. Kids who are involved in lots of activities in high school tend to be protected from getting involved in drugs. They find lots of pleasure in those things and they don't often turn to drugs or if they do, they don't turn to them for very long. So people turn to the drugs, not to become addicted, but because they serve this, this function in their life that's not being served by other things. Uh, and then a lot of the, the there's so, social things that happen. They begin hanging out with people who use drugs and are constantly being reinforced. They're being rewarded for doing that. Their friends are using drugs. And then there's the physiological changes that happen that begin to drive um, their need for those drugs in order to feel normal. They don't necessarily feel euphoric eventually. They, they're trying to get back to where they're not feeling like they're in misery and withdrawal. So, Dr. Leonard, let me go back to something you said before. <clears throat> so, you said as risk goes down, use kind of goes up. But so, yes. so maybe let me phrase it in a simplistic way and please uh, push back. I guess what you're kind of saying, if maybe if somebody doesn't think they have much to lose, then, you know, maybe there is some risk, but all they need is a little bit of positive stuff. And they say, eh, you know, my life's not going anyplace anywhere. Why not? I, I think that's a reasonable assumption. I don't know that we have data that, that says that, but I think, you know, there are some people who, who get, who have a big positive side to taking the drugs. And then there's people who feel like they don't have a downside to it. So I think that's a, a, a reasonable um, uh, assumption to make. So I think, you know, Dr. Lennon, you said there was a little maybe down use in some area, but generally there's kind of been a growth in the use of substances and substance abuse. So as a society, what should we be doing about that? Is there, you know, you've studied this. Is there some, are there some things that we should be addressing to kind of change the trend line? Well, so I would say that there's three things that, that I would think about. So the first um, is, and, and, and each of these have a different time um, kind of approach, right? So the most immediate thing is to uh, destigmatize treatment seeking and to ensure that there's a treatment that's available, that it's state-of-the-art treatment. We have a lot of treatment available throughout the country, but a lot of it is not necessarily state-of-the-art. The, art. the uh, treatment for opiate um, uh, use disorder is, are a variety of medications. That's the first line treatment, along with psychosocial therapy. Most places don't have that. Uh, there's vast areas that are, uh, that are essentially medication deserts. Um, the second thing is trying to ensure that adolescents have meaningful things going on in their lives and, and lots of activities in school. I think things like after school programs can help with that. Um, I think um, I was once approached by a principal who um, 
somebody had said that if somebody violated the alcohol policy, they ought to be thrown off all the athletic teams. And, and I said, no, athletics is one of the things that will keep people away from those things. And that, you know, you, you absolutely don't want to be cutting them off from pro-social behaviors. Um, and then the third thing is, um, and, and this is, this may seem sort of out of the blue, but it would be um, good prenatal and perinatal care and parenting training. We know that a lot of, of the problems that we see later on have to do with um, uh, poor parenting, trauma, um, what we refer to as the adverse um, childhood events. Uh, and to the extent that you can reduce those, you can reduce lots of ills, not just substance use, but um, um, mental illness um, and violence as well. Dr. Kenneth Leonard. Director, Senior Research Scientist, University at Buffalo Clinical Research Institute of Addiction. Hey, thanks so much for uh, sharing with our listeners. Um, I certainly became much more knowledgeable about this, you know, important area that is 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 not good for our society. So, thank you for educating me, and Dr. Leonard, thank you for educating our listeners. And please continued good work on your research, and thank you for what you are doing. Well, thank you, Monsignor Sullivan. Great. Tom, we'll take a break in a minute. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. 
Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic values. We talk about some serious matters. Some of them are how the world is being made much better by individuals. And we talk about some of those negative things that really continue to show the darkness of our world. And we say, just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, So as we kind of continue our conversation uh, today on Just Love, we recognize that we are in Respect Life Month. I also think we have to recognize uh, very um, clearly that the aftermath of the decision of the Supreme Court, which overturned Oh, a 50-year law of Roe Ro v. Wade um, has caused a tremendous amount of um, stir in, the, in our society, which will affect elections, affect the policies in different states. And as most of our listeners know, what the Roe v. Wade decision said was that whatever the states might have in their own individual states at that time, now we're going to say that those don't count because there is a national right for for an abortion in certain circumstances and in many circumstances. And so the Roe v. Wade decision basically superseded whatever state laws there some permitted abortion, some restricted abortion says, but now we have a law across the United States, which basically permits abortion in many, many circumstances. What the decision, oh, a number of, a few months ago did was say, okay, no, the Roe v. Wade decision is no longer in effect. We're overturning it. There's a new decision called Dobbs. And what that basically says, we're going back to whatever the states say in their own particular states, which in the point of fact is that very um, at a very, very high level, about half the states kind of restrict abortion and uh, half the states permit abortion. Now, that is very simplistic because those that permit it sometimes don't permit it in every case, those that restrict it don't restrict it in every case. But generically, it's true to say about half the states are, um, you know, are states in which one can get an abortion and half the states are those where there are significant abortion restrictions. So in this now Respect Life Month, uh, I think it's important for us to raise it up, to have conversations about this, this issue. So and I'm really, really delighted that Elaine Riddick, the executive director of the Rebecca Project for Justice, is joining us on Just Love in this uh, Respect Life Month, who share about her own personal history and how some of that influences 
her work today and about the Rebecca Project for Justice. Elaine Riddick, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. It's very much our privilege to have you on Just Love and to have you as a guest uh, today during this Respect Life Month. Um, So, Elaine Riddick, thank you for being with us, and uh, I appreciate your joining us on Just Love. Oh, thank you for having me. Great. So, um, I know that there is one of the reasons that this is such an important uh, activity is because of your own uh, your own history, your own story. Uh, would you, rather than me tell it, would you kind of share with our listeners your own story? I sure will, and it would be my pleasure to. Um, good afternoon. My name is Elaine Riddick, and I am a survivor, victim survivor of the eugenics forced sterilization program. I was raped at the age of 13. I went in the hospital. I was living with my grandmother, of course. I went in the hospital to have my baby, and uh, I carried him for nine months. And while I was in the hospital, I just turned 14, they decided to sterilize me without my knowledge. Uh, My mother and my father were in prison. No, my mother was in prison. My father, he was shell-shocked. He was suffering from PTSD. And he had abandoned the children. The state of North Carolina had taken uh, five of my siblings and they had placed them in an orphanage. So that left me to live with my my older sister and I to live with my grandmother who was receiving public assistance. And she lived in a two bedroom house and had uh, like 15 children, grandchildren living with her. Wow. Thank you for for sharing that with us. And what did, I mean, that just seems so outrageous. Um, and, and what did the law say? I mean, what, how could the state do that? Well, actually, you know, they have these eugenics programs, which people don't know that the United States allow Uh, the states to decide on who should be sterilized. Now, there are 32 states within the United States that's been doing this to its citizens. And when I confronted the state of North Carolina, but mind you, I fought over close to 50 years before I was compensated. Mm -hmm. And from the time I was 19 until the time I was about 60 years old, And before I was able to get them to agree with me that they had violated my civil liberties. Now, in the meantime, I'm fighting these people and I'm trying to find out, why did you do this to me? What did I do to deserve this? I was a victim of rape. And yet and still you turn around and and rape me again. You know, I mean, it wasn't my fault, you know, that I was raped. I mean, I'm 13 years of age. What can a 13-year-old girl do to fight off a grown, over six feet, 210-pound man? Wow. You know, so the state of North Carolina said that I, the reason they gave me for sterilizing me is that I was feeble-minded. Feeble-minded. Me, feeble-minded. 
It wasn't that I was feeble-minded. This is their excuse that they gave in order to help me sterilize because of my mother's condition. Of course, she was an alcoholic too. And they felt like uh, alcoholism runs in the family. That's not true. You know, they feel like feeble-mindedness runs in the family. So they said that they did this to me so I won't produce my kind. What is producing my kind? What do you mean I won't produce my kind? So they also said, labeled me and said that I wouldn't be able to take care of myself, let alone taking care of children or a child. Wow. That's, (laughs) I mean, when I use the word unbelievable, it doesn't mean that I don't believe you. I believe you, but it, it's so difficult to imagine. And, and I mean, this wasn't something in the Middle Ages. This was in the 1960s. Yes, 1968. I was raped in 1967. You know, and the thing about it, is, and, and, and I'm going to throw all of this in together, because this is one of the reasons why I want to open up a home for children. Because I want to do this so the same thing won't happen to them. I mean, that is my desire. What happened to me is is beyond unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I went, they said I was feeble-minded, but I was still, I'm a college graduate. I never went into high school and I got my college degree. So how can I be feeble-minded and how can I can't take care of myself? Wow. You know, wow. eugenics... You know, they leave it to the social workers and to uh, human resource people or uh, whomever to make these decisions. What happened was a social worker went to the eugenics board in North Carolina and, 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 and asked them to sterilize me. They never even talked to me. Wow. They just said, we believe this girl should be sterilized. And basically, it was because of my background. You know, I mean, you know, when you have to go to school and this here is happening today, when you have to go to school hungry, you know, you leave school, you go home, your mom and your dad is drunk and they're fighting and all of that. What do you expect of me? My condition, my problem was not um, um, uh, mentally, it was environmental, these, these are the issues that we're dealing with with children today. We're seeing a lot of children suffering from because of environmental issues and they are being mislabeled. Did, did, did you even have anybody who advocated for you in this? Or I had nobody and my, my, I didn't even find out until I was nine, five years later that they had did this to me wow. because I was so sick as a little girl Growing up, my grandmother sent me to New York to live. I was so sick as a little girl, I did nothing but hemorrhage 17 days out of a month. Wow. So you met, you mentioned, and I, I'm not sure you said, you said this happened when you were nine months pregnant? Well, I had delivered my son. Okay. I carried my son to four or nine months. Okay. And while they went inside of me to, by cesarean birth, they uh, brought my son in the world. While they had me gutted open, and if I may say like a hog, because that's what it was, uh, they sterilized me at the same time. There was no waiting period. Wow. Wow. That is, um, that is amazing. We're speaking with 
Elaine Riddick, who is the executive director of the Rebecca Project for Justice, herself a, a victim of the eugenics law in in um, North in Carolina in 1968. Uh, thank you for sharing that, um, Elaine. Tell us what the Rebecca Project for Justice is about. Uh, the Rebecca Project for Justice is a transformational organization that advocate for the dignity and uh, the dignity and peace and uh, what else is it? Is the dignity is uh, the dignity and freedom for people here and in Africa and around the world, basically. What we want to do is we want to take these kids out of the street and we want to give them home, love, and hope. I am opening up a, a homeless shelter for our youth at risk, which like they youth at risk can be a seven or eight year old. What we want to do is we want to catch these behavioral problems before they end up through the pipeline, prison pipeline. So we want to do that. And we want to work with mothers, homeless mothers with children. We want to uh, take care of the pregnant youth. We want to give them a safe home to live in. And we want to make sure that they can bond with their children. What we want to do is we want to make sure these kids are getting an education, you know, so, so they can be productive members in society. Uh, we are also working with human trafficking victims. You know, we want to take them out of the street and give them hope and a home and all, as well as an education. We want to take these new babies that is being born and being slaughtered. And we want to have also a drop box too. Well, we can take these babies and, you know, uh, 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 have them adopted. If they're not adopted, we will keep them. We will not put them in foster care because we will become their parents. So, and we will take care of them, nurture them, and do whatever it is to have these children to grow into independent human beings. We want to give them hope. We want to also work with, I don't think I said chemically dependent children. See, what it is now is that uh, is from um, uh, what, it, what do you call it when they leave the foster care and they have nowhere to go. We want to save them. Um, the aged out. Right. We want to go and take these aged out children and give them a place where they don't have to be in the street, where they don't have to get pregnant, where they don't have to be sold into human trafficking. So we want to start you know, and start with the basis. We want to keep keep them out of foster care. Well, I, I just, I want to say that that is just absolutely tremendous. And I mean, all of the different groups that you'd like to help, all of them certainly could need a, a helping hand and need a supportive environment in order to kind of live in dignity and to, to move move forward. Are you, you, you in, in Georgia? Is that where you're working? Yes, I'm starting in Georgia. Um, and then hopefully, I pray that I can do this. I pray, because like I said, I was a victim. Yeah. But I learned how to survive. And what I want to do is I want to give these children hope before these evil things happen. If you see, we, we got Satan out here and he believe in destroying the child. 
If you can destroy the child, you can destroy the world. And that's another reason why we hope that we can get them at youth, you know, from youth. So this way we can keep them out of these situations. Yeah. You know, let me, let me ask quite, I mean, it seems what the law was and the procedures in 1968 were just so awful and horrendous uh, in that way. Am I, I hope I'm not being naive in saying, I assume that those laws no longer exist. Unfortunately, the laws do exist. If we had 32 states, now I understand recently that it was like all 50 states, 50 states had this eugenics laws. However, when I was researching, I found it to be 32 states. And what happened is only three states within the United States have abandoned forced sterilization. So that means that there's 40, um, 32, there's like 29 states that still have it on the books or, or 47 states that still have it on the book, whichever, come, whatever, whichever yeah. is correct. But there are, they do have it on the book. They are still sterilizing young women and young girls. And now they're even thinking about sterilizing young boys. You know, I'm also working with women that was given a dangerous, deadly drug, Depo-Pavera, which is, you know, and it's killing our women. It's making them sterile, you know, and it's just, it's just a hard, it's just, a hot pill to swallow that our government will allow this to happen to its citizens. Wow. It, to me, that is amazing that it is still, uh, that it is still legal in that many places. Um, yes. So um, let me, um, <clears throat> let me ask before I let you go and you've been generous with your time. Is there someplace where our listeners can get more information on the work that you're doing? Yes, they can go to my website, the RebeccaProjectJustice.org, and you can see um, what I would love to do and what I'm trying to do. And, you know, uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a tough thing with me. You know, uh, God told me one time when I was kept asking him, why me, Lord, why me, Lord, why me? You know, when I was asking him, why was I sterilized? Why did it happen to me? And people, I mean, believe me, he turned around and he said, well, why not you? He said, you're the only one that can bring justice and, and cure these people because it's happened to so many people. He said, you know, if you could do this here for me, he said, I will, he said, I will not give you another project, another mission until you complete this mission here. So it's obvious that I completed that mission. So now my new mission is bringing hope to these young children and these homeless families that's out there. Elaine Reddick. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And thanks so much for the work that you continue to do. And with the Rebecca Project for Justice, please, the listeners, if you'd like to know more, you can go to that website. Elaine, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. You're so welcome. And thank you for having me. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And then our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment. 
on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And if each of us did that, our world will be more just and more compassionate. Tom, you know, this week we did speak about some topics which are pretty dark uh, in different ways. Substance abuse, which impacts so many different families. um, And according to our guest, is not diminishing, but is even growing. And I did think, you know, his uh, talking to us about some of the basics, you know, good families, keeping people busy with productive things. Boy, they sound so old fashioned. Mm -hmm. But here's, here's somebody who's done 30 years of research. And he's saying these things, um, these things matter. These things are very, very uh, important in helping people not to kind of become addicted to to drugs. And you know, as we're in pro life uh, pro life month, um, respect life month, 
Um, Elaine Riddick pointed out to us, boy, some of the really awful things mm -hmm. that we have done uh, as a nation and, you know, continue to do the need for um, <clears throat> looking at some of those laws. And obviously, it, it goes without saying that those who were impacted by it were people who had far fewer resources than others, people who were poor, oftentimes people of color, mm -hmm. that it just is something that it's almost unimaginable that that would be something that, you know, existed in the United States until 1968. And as Elaine Riddick said, it hasn't, those laws haven't completely uh, gone away. So anyway, so as we enter into our fall season, wish you a very, very good week. Thank you for being with us on Just Love and um, just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.